You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Thank you, David and worship team. For leading us so beautifully, you cannot believe how perfectly the songs were chosen for the text that we'll be engaging this morning. Um, Welcome to Grace Community Church. If it's your first time, we extend to you a very special welcome. If it's first time in a long time, glad to have you back. And if it is uh, your 125th time, I'd like to know who you are, but uh, that would be, we'll welcome, welcome you as well. A couple of things I want to mention. Uh, one, the day of prayer and fasting coming up Tuesday to Wednesday, Tuesday evening to Wednesday that um, Ricky talked about. <laughs> if you would uh, fast from after dinner until after we meet, and like he said, could be some other way. We're going to be praying uh, this week about the unity of the church, which is a focus here. Uh, not that... <laughs> There's disunity, but always we need to protect the unity of the church, as we'll talk about in in the message. But also, uh, Keisha put out a plea for children's workers uh, this week. I, I wish you could be in on some of the interviews that we have with children who are being baptized and realize the depth of teaching that they are receiving and understanding in children's ministry. It's pretty amazing. So you have a, an opportunity to be a part of that. A privilege to be a part of that. So if you are able and willing. And since the Lord would have you do that. Please be in touch with Keisha. And help her out if you would. Well I want to ask. If you were looking for the perfect church. What would you hope to find? I'm going to guess you'll say things like expository preaching, excellent music ministry, meaningful community, and dynamic age group ministries. Just to name a few of the elements that you would expect to find in the perfect church. I imagine that you would feel pretty much like I do. If I find a perfect church, the best thing I can do is stay away from it so that it remains perfect, you know, because then... You know, people all the time say, Adam and Eve, I can't. I'm like, well, if they hadn't messed it up, I would have. Surely, surely I, I would. There is no perfect church, of course. But all believers who are committed to the authority of Scripture want to be associated with a church that is saturated with the gospel, committed to mission, and blessed with unity. So from what you know about the church at Corinth, if this is perfection and this is the opposite, where would you think Corinth would fit the church that the letter is written in 1 Corinthians to? You're probably way down here in the not-so-perfect category. It's not an example of even a good church, I wouldn't think. Paul addressed one issue after another at Corinth, and he was rarely found singing their praises. I suppose that you could suggest for a theme, as a theme for 1 Corinthians, something like taking the church to the woodshed. 
Uh, for you younger types, in olden days, the woodshed was the place where the father took the son for discipline. Not pleasant, but in earlier cultural understanding, necessary and profitable. At least that was the conventional wisdom of the day. And 1 Corinthians has a bit of that kind of a feel. The Apostle Paul disciplining the church at Corinth with his written words, calling out believers in one facet of church life after another. So why 1 Corinthians? Why here? Why now? I get when reading through 1 Corinthians why sometimes pastors say preach 1 Corinthians at one of two times. As you're first getting to the church or as you're about to leave the church. Now I hope that is not the case for me, that I'm going to be leaving immediately after preaching this at all. Is Grace Community Church in need of stern rebuke? Absolutely not, unless there is a whole lot more going on that I know about. One of the primary reasons that I've been intrigued with the idea of us studying this book together, and the elders are in agreement with this, is that There are so many points of church life that are addressed in this book. Consider a sample of the topics in 1 Corinthians that are addressed far more fully than they are anywhere else in the New Testament, in New Testament epistles. Church discipline, not only the the mechanics of church discipline, but some of the thinking behind it. Legal disputes among believers. Is it right or wrong? Or is it wrong to always take a a believer to court? Um, Intimate relations between husband and wife. It's going to be PG-13. Not because I want it to be PG-13, but because the scripture makes it that. It won't be uh, beyond that, but it, it might be that. So be prepared for that. Divorce and remarriage. 1 Corinthians 7 has a lot to say, and there may be some understanding that you have not had before. It's a little bit confusing when you think, what's acceptable, what's permissible, what's not? Um, Scripture is not maybe as direct as we want it to be in others, and it's very direct in other ways. So what is it all about, divorce and remarriage? The meaning and practice of the Lord's Supper, not just the mechanics, but a whole lot that goes into the practice and the meaning of the Lord's Supper. Uh, The use and abuse of spiritual gifts. And then proof, meaning, and benefit of Jesus' resurrection. This is not an exclusive list by any means. I mean, we haven't talked about women and head coverings and uh, several of the other issues that are talked about, whether it's okay to eat meat, that's been offered to idols or not, and how that might correspond to activities that some Christians feel okay doing and other Christians don't feel okay doing, and how are we to treat one another when we have differences of opinion about what is acceptable and not not acceptable as believers who are following Christ. So this will give you an idea of some of the topics that we're going to be looking at in this book. Not all were in response to misbehavior or bad belief, but many were. When we think about the ways that we got our doctrinal statements or the creeds, the Apostles' Creed, when we say that from time to time here, a lot of people say, oh, well, that's 
from a different discipline than us. But look, Christians have said the Apostles' Creed forever. Well, not forever, but from the early days of the Christian church, we were saying the Apostles' Creed together. And a lot of times, the different points in the creed or in our doctrinal statements are in response to heresy. People knew what was right and they just lived that way until somebody came along and started teaching heresy. And then the church would get together and say, okay, now we got to respond. Well, the same thing is going on here. We can actually thank the Corinthians for some of their behavior because we get a full treatment of how Christians are to think about these different topics that affect us all. Um, so I'm going to be introducing the book of first Corinthians throughout the month of May. Uh, even though there are five Sundays in May, I'm only going to be preaching on three of those Sundays. We're going to hear from Ted McKinney on May 15 and Mike Rader on May 29. As difficult as some of these passages in first Corinthians are, uh, I am excited to preach through the book, not as a corrective for our wayward tendencies, but for our focus of life in the church with the cross at the center. That's the title of our series, Life in the Church with the Cross at the Center. Our text is 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9, which covers the introduction of Paul's letter to his friends in Corinth. Uh, and, and it begins with a customary greeting in the first three verses. They always gave their name first. We usually say, Dear Neil. And then at the end, love, well, no, I'm not going to say that. No. I'm going to say, in, Love in Christ, uh, Brad. But they would always begin with the, with the author at the first. And it was, it was a very traditional greeting, a uh, Christian greeting, in fact. And then the author would move to words of thanksgiving for the Lord's work in their lives, as we'll find in verses 4 through 9. If we had a sheet and on one column you list all of the New Testament epistles, and on this column you give a, give a brief part of the introduction, I doubt seriously you would choose this introduction to 1 Corinthians. You wouldn't match it because... <laughs> This church had some troubles, and Paul talks about them in the most glowing terms in the, in the introduction. It's because this is God's view. This is the way God sees his church, regardless of the problems on the ground. It's a good place to remember that when Paul introduces this letter, and all the stuff that's going to come after, with all the stuff coming after, this is how God sees them and how he sees us as believers who are united with Jesus even when we struggle. Paul describes the perfect church. So let's get to the scripture. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word, 1 Corinthians 1, <coughs> 1 through 9. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ 
both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift or any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you and be seated. Corinth was not only the perfect church, it was in the perfect place. And by the way, drink up this notion of perfect church because it's not going to feel like that for the rest of the entire book. But God is seeing them in Christ and he's calling them perfect. So one thing will never change though. It will never be in question. God's love and care and expectations for his children. Corinth was located on a narrow strip of land known as an isthmus. It's spelled like isthmus, but we just say isthmus. It's a, it's a little strip of land. It's dividing two large areas of water. Uh, it's connected to Athens in the east and Sparta in the west. Of course, I need to do this for your, your sake. Uh, in the east and west... It looked northward to the province of Achaia, beyond which lay Philippi and Thessalonica, very important cities in the ancient world. And to the south lay the Peloponnese and Cape Malaya. The strip of land across Corinth was situated, where Corinth was situated, I mean, was, again, less than four miles across. And even though Corinth was in Greece, it was very much a Roman city Vital with its location uh, for trade. It was much easier for tradesmen at the time to come in to Corinth, unload their cargo. If they had a lightweight ship, they could unload it with cargo. And they had a, 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 a system devised where they could put the um, ship on rollers and then carry it across to the other side over by Sincrea. They didn't have a canal at the time. They do now. In fact, they have one 100, 200 years later somewhere in that neighborhood. But it wasn't there at the time. Allison and I were there four years ago, I think. And we went through this canal. It's very narrow, relatively small boat. And you could just reach out, it felt like, and touch either side. But it's like the Panama Canal. So even though the canal was not in existence, it still made sense for businessmen to offload here, get the ship across, and then on their way, load it up and on their way again. It was much easier for uh, sailors to come through there, seamen to come through there, than it was to go around the, the Cape of Malaya down at the bottom, which we really can't see too well on our map. You can imagine when the Corinthians uh, 
put commercial tolls come in and go in. But they became quite wealthy. Such an important trade center brought, as you can imagine, all sorts of people to this city of 100,000 plus people that had been rebuilt by Rome in 44 BC after destroying it 100 years earlier. They destroyed it a Greek city and they rebuilt it a Roman city. Anthony Thistleton said that by comparison, Athens might have seemed a slumbering university city dreaming of its greater past. Athens had the reputation, but Corinth is where it was happening. They hosted the Isthmian Games every other year, which were second in importance in the ancient world, only to the Olympic Games. The Olympic Games happen every four years, but every other year, the second biggest event in all of the Roman Empire, athletic event, was happening in <coughs> Corinth. So people would stay in tents, which is why it was really good for Paul as a tent maker to be in Corinth. Because of its committed worship of the goddess Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, Corinth had a moral laxity of a modern-day San Francisco or New Orleans and the business feel of a New York or London. In fact, it was all in that one city. So it makes sense if it was such an important business and entertainment center that Corinth was also a strategic location for the spread of the gospel. North, south, east, west. They came from every direction. <clears throat> Everybody was going through Corinth on their way to somewhere else. And there was a lot of travel in that day. The Roman roads, the the seaports all over the Roman Empire. People were coming and going. Business was good all over the place. The church at Corinth was a mixture of Jewish and Gentile believers. And we'll talk more about that next week. If you only read the introduction to the book, you would think, my goodness, this is an impressive church. Tell me about this church. If you get a little bit beyond the introduction, you're likely to think, my goodness, what a mess this church was. Even so, God loved them. He called them to be saints, sanctified them, and prepared his church in Corinth for service. He promised them that when Christ is fully unveiled, in other words, when he is revealed or when he returns... They will be brought to stand before him at the judgment, guiltless, without any fault, without guilt. And the King of kings and Lord of lords will welcome them as his brothers, sons and daughters of the Father. He called them saints. You know some people that say, oh, that person's a saint. That person's not a saint. Well, look, if they're both Christians, they're saints. We tend to think of saints, you know, in, in a different way. I heard about these two brothers that were in a small town. I mean, they were mean as snakes. Both of them were just as mean as they could be. And one of them died. It was a small town, so everybody knew everybody. And the surviving brother said, I'll give any preacher who will call my brother a saint $1,000. 
And so the most conservative pastor in town said, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. And everybody's like, what? You're the, you're the last person we would think would do that. So everybody came to the funeral just to see what he'd say. And he said, everybody knows that the man in this casket was the sorriest, low-downest, meanest man that's ever been in this town. But compared to his brother, he was a saint. <laughs> so, not that kind of saint. But we are saints if we belong to Jesus. So let me ask you. By the way, that, that sounds like something Jim Acock would do, doesn't it? He would do that. He'd say, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. How do you feel about your walk with the Lord? How do you feel about yourself as a Christian or even as a person? If you're feeling down about yourself, hopefully you'll just soak and marinate in the truth of 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9. And it will be a great encouragement to you. Even if you feel like a failure, God views you in Christ as perfect. Next week, I think we're going to look at the text and say, you know, there are not as many people going to heaven as think they are. But this week we look at the text and say, you know, there are probably a lot more people going to heaven than we might think. Those of us who believe the gospel and we look at the lives of some people who profess Christ and they don't live up to that. Well, maybe some of them are going to heaven. But God's never content to leave us in a mess or in a messy place. In verse 1, Paul identified himself Although the Corinthians and Paul knew one another very well. He had spent 18 months in Corinth. And there had already been correspondence between the two um, parties. Between the two parties before 1 Corinthians was ever written. We think of those two letters that Paul wrote to Corinth as the only correspondence. But there may have been as many as seven exchanges of letters and information Going back and forth. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians from Ephesus. Another very important location and church in the first century. Probably somewhere around AD 54 or 55. And he also identified Sosthenes as a co-author. Sosthenes uh, was almost certainly the former leader of the synagogue described in Acts 18. If you were in uh, home group this week, you're going to read from Acts 18 and, know, and learn a good bit more about the church. And it, it must have been that Sosthenes had become a believer. God's call on Paul's life was very important to him. He understood that his salvation, his call to ministry, and the conversion of the, the Corinthian believers were all the result... <clears throat> Of God's gracious call on their lives. In a city where self-promotion was much like our own day. We'll get into that in a little more detail next week. But it's just like today. I mean, everybody in Corinth had a Twitter account. And, and all the different social media. They had everything going on. Everybody was bragging on him or herself. Paul 
pointed in humility. In that day, he pointed in humility to God's gracious work in the lives of his children. The church at Corinth was only part of the much larger church into which God had brought them. He, he may have been saying in so many words, hey, look, I, yes, it's an important church at Corinth because so many people come through here. But don't you know, it's only part of a larger group. Don't get too excited about your own church. God has brought us into this beautiful church that is far bigger than we are. But anyway, you look at it, Corinth's church was an impressive church. Between Acts 18, <clears throat> Romans 16, by the way, the book of Romans was written from Corinth, and Paul was sending greetings. So between Acts 18, Romans 16, and the two letters about, uh, written to Corinth, we probably know as much about Corinth as we do any mid-century, uh, first-century church. Somewhere around 15 people are mentioned. I didn't do all the counts. I didn't go into all the details to count every name. <clears throat> but a lot of people think there were at least 100 people in this church. And somewhere around 15 are mentioned in those three places. So, and then we know because of the people who are mentioned that there are elites who were church members there, as were city officials. Erastus was a city official. Now, I... Gosh, I hate to say this because I know what it sounds like. But I've, I've been to Corinth twice, actually. Once in the early 80s and then back about four years ago, Allison and I went there. But I was looking for a stone that I didn't find this time. But we, had a, we were on a Holy Land tour the first time. And there is a stone with Erastus' name in it. Almost certainly the Erastus that is mentioned in the Bible. City officials uh, would often sponsor like or they would pay for a road raise the money for a road and then their names would be engraved and Erastus was there so we know there were elites in the in the church there were Gentiles Jews almost certainly there were slaves multi-ethnic multi-racial racial the church at Corinth had the sort of diversity that 21st century churches crave in the west all the gifts that were needed to make up the body of Christ in the local setting were present. And because of the faithfulness of God, they could look forward to the day when they would stand without guilt before the Savior in whom they had been sanctified. We know the bad stuff is coming in 1 Corinthians. But let's marinate this morning in God's Goodness and faithfulness. And remember, this is the foundation to the whole thing. We're going to think about three privileges that we have as God's children in Jesus. Comforted, gifted to serve in the church by the Holy Spirit. First, we should thank God often for, for Him calling us into His family through Jesus. Elbert McKinney, one of the founding members of Grace Community Church and the father of our own Ted McKinney, used to always begin a time of testimony by saying, I thank God for my salvation. He would start every Christmas Eve service for the first 10, 12 years that I was here. He would begin the service by playing Silent Night 
on his harmonica. And if I, if I recall correctly, some of you remember that. He may have said it even then. Because you always heard Elbert say, I thank God for my salvation. How pleased must the Lord have been with Elbert saying that? And we would do well to follow our brother's example. Why is it that we have been privileged to be called children of God? Why did we call on the name of the Lord as prophesied in Joel 2.32 and implied in in Paul's opening words, we keep running into Joel 2.32. All who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Is it because we're better than others that we're called, that we called on the Lord? Is it because we are wise enough to understand the gospel? The gospel that is utterly counterintuitive to all other religious expressions? No. No, it's not because of that. We are sinful men and women as we started this service right from the get-go. I know who I was before Christ and I know who I am in Christ. God's grace has been poured out on us despite our many sins and failures. We are those who will be presented guiltless before the Lord. It's grace. It's all Grace. So regardless of how difficult or easy life is for you right now. And if you think, wow, you know, life's pretty good for me right now. I must be doing a lot right. I'd like to introduce you to some other people in the congregation right now. It's been a hard year. Last year was a hard year. We lost a lot of people. Children, parents, siblings. But regardless of how difficult or easy life is for you right now, regardless of how well you are doing or not doing in the obedience department, regardless of your medical condition, your family relationships, church relationships, thank God frequently that He has called you into His family. Second, ask the Father For the power of the Spirit to live for Jesus. I love the focus in Jeff's prayer time this morning. Talking about TBR. Ask for the Holy Spirit's presence in the lives of our teenagers. And to be at work at TBR this summer. We know that Paul's tone is going to shift dramatically in the section immediately following this introduction. And he will point out the multiple ways in which the church at Corinth was failing to live up to the calling that was upon their lives. Just because we belong to Jesus and just because we are assured that on the final day we're going to be presented guiltless does not mean we can live any way we want. In fact, Paul said over and over in the Word, you're not to live this way. How can you live The way that you're doing. He would say to the Corinthians in so many words. You're better than this. Jesus didn't call you to to a careless life. He sanctified you for his purposes. He set you apart for holy purposes. But you live as though you, you are in the world. And you can live any way you want to. But just have a little bit of 
of, of a spiritual impulse. And then you're going to call that life in Christ, freedom in Christ. No, you don't get to live any way that you want to live. We will be warned to avoid the folly of seeking to live like the world and call it spiritual. We should frequently ask God for the power of the Holy Spirit to be in our lives so that we will live like Jesus. And living like Jesus has a very special or a specific component that involves the cross. The, God, the calling that God has placed on our collective lives as members of Grace Community Church is to preach Christ and Him crucified and to die to our own desires every day. And our heart ought to be, oh Lord, may Jesus be seen in us. Last, pray for unity in the Spirit at Grace Community Church. <clears throat> Look, we've enjoyed marvelous unity <clears throat> for a long time at Grace. Uh, unity, though, just like physical health, just like relationships, just like everything almost is far more fragile than we realize. We must never take unity for granted. And we must work to preserve the unity that is already ours in Christ. Living a crucified and resurrected life. Dying to our personal preferences, preferences and living those who have been raised with Jesus and are united with him living in resurrection power. If we were only exposed to the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians, we would have no idea that problems existed in the church. Why is that? Why doesn't Paul just give a little hint of what's about to be unloaded? <laughs> because in the introduction, we are getting God's view of his children as they exist in Jesus. It's the way we're going to be when we're around the throne, worshiping the Lord throughout eternity. That's not all we're going to be doing in the new heavens and new earth. But we're going to all be together, worshiping the Lord, serving Him all throughout eternity, loving each other. This introduction reminds me so much of a series of events that took place in the book of Numbers that shows God's deep love for His disobedient children. So, once again, I ask you about Corinthians. There are so many parallels here. It's, it's amazing. If I ask you to characterize the life of the children of Israel in the wilderness for those 40 years, how would you characterize it? You'd say, eh, not so good. Man, every time you turn around, that's, something bad is happening. They're constantly grumbling. In fact, we, we read about their refusal to obey the Lord only two years in to go into the promised land. They're saying, oh, why did God bring us out here to die? We had, so much, we had it so much better back in Egypt. And the Lord said, okay, because of that, you're going to wander in this wilderness for another 38 years, 40 in total, till every single one of you who is 20 years old and older is dead, except for Joshua and Caleb. By the way, Immediately after the 
Israelites' refusal to go into the land at Kadesh Barnea, God said to Moses, Now teach the people when you go into the land. So who is he talking to? Most of them were going to be dead. Or the older folks were going to be dead anyway. Well, he was telling parents, this is what you need, how you need to prepare your children. But I think he was also talking to teenagers. He was telling them, teenagers, you need to listen. Because when you go into the land, this is how I expect you to live. But anyway, they refused to go into the land. They grumbled about lack of food, lack of water. We read about the rebellion of Korah who rejected Moses and Aaron's leadership. And Korah, along with his family, was swallowed up by the earth. We read about grumbling that led to poisonous snakes being sent by the Lord to bite the people. And many were dying. And they cried out to Moses, help us. And the Lord said, fashion a bronze snake. Put it on a pole. Stick it up. And everyone who looks at it will live. That makes no sense at all until we come to John 3. And then it makes perfect sense when Jesus tells Nicodemus, just like the snake was lifted up in the wilderness and all who looked on it would live, those who look on the Son of Man when He is lifted up will have eternal life. In Numbers 22, lots more had happened. They were complaining. They got on Moses. They said, we need water He said, am I going to have to bring water out of the rock? Bam, he hits the rock. Water comes gushing out. But God said, you disobeyed me. And you're not going to go into the promised land. That's a pretty heavy consequence. Again, we'll talk about it in home group this week. But in Numbers 22, after the Israelites, on their way to the promised land, had defeated a couple of nations, we read about, The nervousness of Balak, king of Moab. Because he's like, here these people are coming. We need to do something. So I'll tell you what. There's a prophet for hire over here named Balaam. And whom he blesses, the Lord seems to bless. Whom he curses, the Lord seems to curse. So we're going to call him, get him over here. Now if you remember the story, Balaam had a hard time getting there. He wanted to. The money was good. So he wanted to go. But... The Lord kept putting one block after another in his way, and he kept trying to get around it. Finally, his own donkey rebuked him. What are you doing? Do you not understand what's going on here? He finally gets there, and Balak says, you need to curse these people. This ought to be an easy job, right? I mean, look, we've been on the ground with these guys, and they're awful. they got problems galore. But every time he opened his mouth, a blessing came out. Here's only just a sample of what Balaam said. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob. Your encampments, O Israel. And you're like, who's he he talking about? The people that were just falling right and left, that disobey God and grumble and complain at every turn. Blessed are those who bless you. And cursed are those who who curse you. Four times Balaam prophesied over Israel and four times just the most beautiful things and the promise of victory over their enemies came out of his mouth. The grumbling, stumbling misfits who continually disobeyed the Lord were blessed by the Lord with the most beautiful 
affirmations. It was the view from above. And that is the way God views us in Jesus. Despite our sinful nature, despite our pride, despite our intentional sins, our failures, our self-centered ways. How can he look at us as perfect when we ourselves realize that we are so wretched? Because of the cross of Jesus, which will be the focus of this entire series in 1 Corinthians. This morning, we will remember Jesus' death for us as we gather at the Lord's table to participate in the Lord's Supper. And it is at this table that we will examine our lives for sin that needs to be confessed. We'll ask the Holy Spirit to shine His light on any sins that need to be Confess, But it is also here that we will remember that God loves us in Jesus no matter what. None of that an encouragement to sin, but the exact opposite. An encouragement to live in a manner that pleases our Lord. So as the elders and deacons come forward in preparation to serve, I want to give some instructions. On the first Sunday of the month, we come forward to receive the elements. And on the third Sunday of the month, we receive the elements at our seats. So today being the first Sunday of the month, we're asking them to come forward. There'll be two servers in front of each section where you will come forward, receive the bread and juice, and take those elements back to your seats and hang on to them so that we can partake Together, The bread is gluten-free, by the way, if you have those issues, and more and more people do. So just be aware of that. Um, ushers will alert you when to come. You will come down the interior aisles and then go back either the center or the outer aisles. We invite all believers to participate in this meal. If you have trusted Jesus, Jesus is your only hope of heaven by all means, please join us in this meal. So it is appropriate, uh, I think, to read from 1 Corinthians 11 as we prepare to receive the elements. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also we took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, thinking back on this present activity until he comes. In the future. First Corinthians also encourages us to examine ourselves before we come to this table. This is not meant as a warning for those of you who are struggling with sin and you've confessed it and you still find yourself in a place. This is meant as a warning for those who were abusing the Lord's table. We'll get to that when we get to First Corinthians 11, 10 and 11. We'll, we'll get to it in detail. But if you have confessed the sin ten times this week and ten times you've had to 
the 11th time you need to confess it again because you did it again. Don't stay from this table. This table is designed to help us in our life and our walk with the Lord. This time is designed for you to confess your sin to the Lord and to come and to take freely of the bread and the juice reminding us of the body that was broken for us and the, and the blood that was spilled for the forgiveness of our sins. So if you have sin in your life that you need to confess, and don't we all, and I'm going to take just about 30, 45 seconds to give you opportunity to do that, and then we'll come to the table. Father, we confess two things. We confess that we are sinners. We know that we have been cleansed of our sins in Christ. But our feet still get dirty. And though we don't need that cleansing from head to toe. Our feet need to be washed. And even the washing of our feet, the Savior does. So Father... We confess to you the sins that we have committed that we know were wrong. The sins uh, that we have committed of omission as well as commission. Things that we ought to have done but we didn't do. Lord, we confess our sin to you. And we confess that we believe that when Jesus died to save us from our sins, he did cleanse us. Now we confess our sins as we come to this table, knowing that in our remembrance of what Christ did on the cross, we are free in him. Thank you for forgiving us as you have in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.